If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Psalm 33. Throughout this month of January, uh, we're going to be in a different psalm every week, and we're going to have a few other preachers filling in toward the end of this month, um, and uh, I'm excited about the opportunity to be able to hear some other men come in and preach the word for you. Uh, but we'll be in the book of Psalms this month, doing a different psalm each week until we begin our series in Exodus in February. But this week we're in Psalm 33. That should be on the screen behind me if you uh, aren't able to find it in time. <clears throat> it says this, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looked out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. J.C., our uh, two-year-old daughter, is officially at that age, at that point in her life, where she wants an audience for everything that she's doing. Whenever I'm home on lunch breaks, nights, weekends, whenever that may be, here's how it usually goes. Daddy! 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 And then I look, and she's like got her spoon to her baby, and she's trying to feed it or something. <laughs> and it would be tempting in some of those moments, if I were someone else, to look at that and go, is that it? Is that what she wanted my attention for? Is she doing the thing that she had to have me look at her to do? But I'm not allowed to like respond that way to her. Am I? I mean, a, a lot of times I'm actually excited about it. It's not always something silly or something crazy. It's something I haven't seen before sometimes. I'm, it's not hard for me to get excited. She's, she's my daughter. A, a big positive reaction that she's looking for, that's not that hard for me to muster up. Oh, wow, you're doing such a good job. Oh, JC, that is just the prettiest hair I have ever seen. J.C. Miller, no one has ever held a spoon the way that you are holding a spoon right now. You're doing such a good job. That's not hard for me to respond that way. And that's the right response, right? Like she's two, 
She's doing something she's excited about, and she is the cutest little two-year-old I have ever seen in my entire life. That's the right way to respond, to see who she is and what she's doing, and to give her the fullness of what I have in me in that moment. In this psalm today, we're able to see the right response to who God is. It would be wrong for me to respond to JC in those moments and say, like, JC, that baby is not eating your cereal. That's not how this works. I know, like, the eyes close whenever you, like, lay them down and bring them back up, but there's no, like, stomach in there. She's not going to eat your cereal. You need to stop. This is silly. That would be the wrong response. The wrong response to God, whenever we see him for who he is and what he's done, would be the opposite of the things that we're able to see in this psalm. In this psalm today, we're going to see four right responses to the nature of God. Whenever we look at this psalm together in this time, we're going to be able to find four right responses to the nature of God from Psalm 33. And the first right response to the nature of God that we should have from this psalm is that we should praise the Lord because this is right. We should praise the Lord because this is right. Look at the first three verses. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. As triumphant as this psalm is, as much time is spent in it on the the wonder, the, the majesty of God, who he is and what he's done, his power and might, it doesn't actually begin there. Typically, how I think and how scripture tends to operate is it starts with who God is and then it tells us how we should respond to who God is. This psalm inverts that. It it flips that. It begins with our response and then tells us why we should respond that way. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. We're being told to praise him before we're reminded why we should be praising him. Simply because praise befits the upright. Praise is fitting for the one who is upright. Praise is fitting for the righteous. It's fitting for someone who is righteous and upright to praise God and shout for joy in him because of who he is and what he's done. We're being told to praise him earnestly here, to give it all we've got. Shout when you praise. There's no concept here of proper conduct before him of austerity, of mild-mannered politeness. The psalmist, whoever wrote this, is not concerned whether you sing well or not. He's not concerned whether the person next to you thinks that you might be being a little bit too loud or not. He's concerned with whether you're earnestly crying out, shouting to God or not. He's saying you cannot praise and also whisper. So no, shouting doesn't necessarily mean that you're praising earnestly, but the one who is praising earnestly cannot do that at a whisper. You can't mumble praise. That's not how it works. If it's true, it's loud. Loud may not be true, but it can't be true without being loud. Praise him earnestly. Give thanks with the lyre. Make melody with the harp. Use the instruments. Turn it up a little bit. Jam a little bit. Miss Donna, 
may not be here playing the piano for us very long. She's welcome as long as she's able to and until we can find someone else to come in here and do it for us. But let me tell you some of the things I love about having Miss Donna here playing the piano with us. Not just her skill, not just the attitude, the smile she brings into the room, not just, honestly, as I preach, she's the first voice that I hear, amens, and that's right, that's, that's helpful to me, I appreciate that. But maybe my favorite thing about listening to Miss Donna play the piano is how loud she plays the piano. She is hitting those keys with all the power in her fingers that she's got. She's pounding them. And it's not because she's been like bodybuilding her whole life. It's not because she's been working out her fingers so that she can be loud. It's because she is so earnestly playing the piano that you can't do that softly. You can't do that gingerly and tenderly. Praise befits the upright. And she's given it all she's got on every key that she hits. I love it. If you've heard me talk about music, about my worship philosophy here at the church, you've heard me say the phrase congregational singing. When we sing, when we praise in worship, the congregation's voices, our voices, that's supposed to be the primary instrument. That's supposed to be the loudest thing in the room. It's supposed to be the central focus of what we do. Everything else is meant to accompany the voices, It's meant to aid the voices, to help the voices find the right pitch and key to be able to sing, to know when to come in. Everything else is supposed to be done to make sure that the voices are coming along as much and as loudly as they can. We don't just have the harp and the lyre. We praise and sing with the harp and the lyre. I'm not changing my mind about that. But let me tell you, we are in no danger here of the music being too loud. If we ever on a Sunday morning think, man, the music's just too loud, it's not because the music is too loud. It's hard for us to be any softer some Sundays. If you ever think that the music is too loud, it's because we aren't singing loud enough. We're not praising earnestly enough. That's what it looks like for the one who is upright to praise God, to sing with all that we've got. I'll tell you, I don't know how my wife stays anywhere close to the right note wherever we're singing, because I am, it feels like, shouting some Sunday mornings, and I'm not right on, okay? I can be like within a several notes of where I'm supposed to be, but I'm not nailing it, but I'm loud. There's a reason if you ever happen to see me in worship, I check about every 10 seconds to make sure that my mic pack is off because if it's ever on, not only am I screaming into the mic, but it doesn't sound good. Praise befits the upright. We got to shout, this psalm is telling us. And it's saying to shout before it tells us to play well. But we don't really get off the hook just for good effort or intent. We should also praise him well. Verse 3 says to play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. So, so we shout. We, we give it all we got. We praise with everything within us. But we're also, you know, aiming for the right notes. We train ourselves. We train our voices. We train our instrumentalists to, to sing, to play well to do what we do earnestly and also skillfully. You know, that's why we rehearse on Sunday mornings. That's why they practice throughout the week. 
That's why you make me turn off my microphone during the singing, because we have to do this skillfully. We got to do it well so that we can hear it well. And let me also say, just point out that this verse explicitly tells us to sing new songs. I haven't heard many complaints. In some churches, you introduce new songs and everyone complains. I haven't heard that here. I'm not saying that you guys are complaining with new songs. I haven't heard many complaints about the new music that we've introduced since I've gotten here a little over two years ago. I think most of you like the newer songs that we've done. His Mercy is More, the last one that we just sang. That's one of the newer songs we've introduced, and I think you guys like it. But if you ever wonder, if the thought ever pops into your head, man, why don't we just stick with the same ones that we've always had? Why don't we just go back to the ones that we sang whenever I was a kid? This verse is part of why. If we're going to praise as we should, if we're going to praise as the Bible is telling us to, we have to sing something new every once in a while. So we're not going to apologize for introducing new music. We're not going to stop introducing new music. We're going to sing whatever will help us praise Him earnestly and praise Him well, because that is right, the psalm is saying in these first few verses. But we're also going to respond to the nature of God by fearing the Lord because of His Word. That's the second right response to the nature of God from this psalm. It's to fear the Lord because of His Word. Look back at verse 4. For the Word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. This is where the psalm transitions from what we should do, praise, to why we should do that. For the word of the Lord is upright. All his work is done in faithfulness. You see, there's no double-tongued nature to God's word. There are no lies or deceit which come out of his mouth. Out of the heart the mouth speaks, and what comes out of God is upright and faithful because he is upright and faithful. He loves righteousness and justice. He has so much steadfast love within him that it fills the whole earth. So whatever comes from him, his word, it's going to have those same qualities. But then we get to some qualities of his word that we wouldn't necessarily expect, right? Verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, by the breath of his mouth, all their host. I mean, hopefully the, the words I say are upright and faithful. I, I want my word to be my bond. I want it to be true and dependable. But my words aren't making the heavens. They don't have that kind of power. The breath out of my mouth, it doesn't create all of their hosts. So this is an aspect of the word of God, which is wholly unique. But it shouldn't really shock us when we read our Bibles, right? I mean, Genesis 1-3, it's early on in January. You guys probably read this in the last week. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. He spoke, and then it happened. By his word, he created. And then we see the same thing happen in every day of creation. God says, let there be, and there is. 
So he creates by his word. And he still does that today. That's why we place such a high emphasis on the Bible, God's word, here at Pleasant Grove. He creates. He renews. He transforms. He saves. He acts through his word, even still today. So that word which he has given us is what now, when we hear it, creates us as a people, as his people. It's what calls us to salvation. It's what places faith in our hearts. By his word, we become who he created us to be. So we're going to preach it. We're going to pray it. We're going to sing it. We're going to read it to become who he would have us be. And perhaps the most magnificent aspect of his word, wherever we understand it biblically, is that though, yes, it does do all of these things, the word of God isn't some disembodied concept. It's not just some idea that's thrown out in the Bible. His word, biblically, is a person. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who became incarnate and took to himself human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Word of God. John 1.1 calls Him the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Colossians 1.16 ascribes to Jesus the same things that this psalm ascribes to God's Word. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Jesus is the Word of God. And when we think about all these aspects of God's Word, particularly in the person of Jesus Christ, His Word is going to produce awe in us. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. When we understand His power and might, that He speaks and things happen, Fearing him, having what is a right and true reverence before him, standing in awe of him, that's the right response. We should fear him because of his word and the power and beauty that it contains. And his power and beauty should create another response in us. It should cause us to behold the Lord because he is mighty. That's the third response that's right to the nature of the Lord from today's psalm. We should behold the Lord because he is mighty. Look at verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. He's so mighty that he chooses the fate of nations. Their counsel comes to nothing before him. He's going to bring and enact his own wisdom. The peoples, we have plans, and then God frustrates them. 
I mean, what's the saying there? If you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans, right? Evidently, that also applies to countries, to kings and rulers. Their counsel, their wisdom, it comes to nothing before him. But his stands forever. Our plans, they get frustrated, but the plans of his heart stand for all generations. God is not losing his grip. Things are not spiraling out of control. It might feel that way to you. You might be experiencing it as if that were true. It may seem that way. But God is just as sovereign today as he was during whatever decade of life you choose, whatever your favorite years were in your life, in the life of this world, in the life of this country. He chooses the fate of every nation. It's 2024. That means a few things. One, it's a leap year. Uh, so February gets an extra day. It's almost like a real month now. Now it has 29. So close. Uh, there's also Summer Olympics this year. That's exciting. That's fun. They're in Paris, though, so all the good stuff's going to happen while you're at work at roughly lunch hour, noonish. But it also means that there's a presidential election this year. It also means that come November, we're going to go through what we go through every four years, except it feels different. It has felt different the last several cycles. Stuff is going to get weird, okay? Just know that right now. It's January. I can tell you in November, you're going to be like, man, I didn't think this was going to happen. You can bake that in right now. Absolutely. Stuff already is weird. If you took a single aspect of the presidential election that we're about to have and put it into any other year, you'd be like, oh, this is a weird one. You add it all together, it's going to feel like chaos. It's going to feel like things are spiraling out of control. It might look like chaos to someone who can't see what God is doing. The results of whatever election we have, contested or not, they may actually result in even more chaos afterward than we see before it. But here is a thought to comfort you in this year as the nations rage as our nation likely is included in that group of nations who rage. God chooses the fate of nations. God chooses the fate of people. If things go as wrong as they possibly could, I'm not saying this is what's going to happen. I don't think this is what's going to happen. But if this actually were the last election in the United States of America, if everything completely dissolved on November, what is it, 9th, whatever day that is, the day after, or January 22nd, 2025, whatever that is, if everything went as terribly wrong for this country as you could possibly imagine it going, then Christian, know this, that God chooses the fate of nations. The nation whose God is the Lord is blessed. And we, the church, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage, we are blessed. He is so mighty that he chooses the fate of nations. 
He's so mighty that he sees the people's deeds. He looks down from heaven and sees all the children of man. From his vantage point as the sovereign ruler of all things, from his throne, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He's fashioned our hearts. He observes all our deeds. There's nothing that gets past him, nothing that he doesn't notice. His focus is somehow always everywhere. He's not divided in power. He's not distracted by bigger things going on somewhere else. He sees the good and the bad. He knows the false and the true, the apparent and the hidden. But notice where the psalm goes from there. It's not just listing out all these facts of him and his power as if it's like stats in a video game. Vision, infinity. Power, infinity. Intelligence, infinity. The psalm talks about his sovereign plans for all people and then reminds us that he sees all things, that he's looking down on us as the one who made us and sees what we're doing. It's reminding us that he has a plan and he knows what's going on. So then, when it says what it says in verses 16 and 17, we don't think that maybe he just doesn't know what he's talking about. We don't think this is just posturing. We're reminded, no, 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 he has all the power. He knows what's going on. He sees what's going on. He's aware of everything. And then, when he says what he says in 16 and 17, we know, man, he means it. Verse 16, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The warhorse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. God has a plan, and he knows what he's, going, what he's doing. He knows what's going on. He wins every battle. The king, as powerful as he is, he can't escape God's plan for the nation. His army, as great as it is, it can't save the king in this battle. Even all the way down to an individual warrior, as strong as he might be, he's not going to be delivered by that strength. God wins every battle. There is no force or power that can stand before him. All his work is done in faithfulness. Do you think you're going to be able to catch him in the wrong? His word created the heavens, and you think that you can argue with him? He gathers the waters together as a heap, the the deeps in storehouses. The ocean, evidently, isn't deep enough to overflow his tanks. The ground you stand on is only firm because God made it that way, and he sustains it that way. And some king thinks that he can be saved by his army? Some guys with Sticks? Metal? That way lies folly. Fighting God does not work. The war horse, as strong and majestic as it is, as much promise and hope that you might have on top of it, as you crest the hill with the sunlight behind you and a host of warriors around you, that's a false hope. There's no salvation there. Its great might can't rescue you from God Almighty. And the point here isn't some kind of macho measuring. That God wants to to fight a horse and see what happens or something. The psalmist is making this point. He's emphasizing the great power of God, his sovereign plan, because we're so apt to think that we can contend with God and win. 
we're so apt to think, yeah, 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 but he hasn't met somebody as stubborn as me. Yeah, 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 but he hasn't met somebody with the plans that I have, with the power that I have, with the, the hopes and dreams and fears that I have. We keep thinking that if we can just wrestle through the night, God's going to give up. That if we just remain stubborn enough, God will give up. If we just ask earnestly enough for him to let us keep this sin, whatever it is, that God will give up eventually. These comparisons, they're absurd. But they're not absurd because God just wants to fight a horse. The comparisons are absurd because we have a thing for shaking our fists at the clouds and thinking that we're going to win. We have a thing for punching tidal waves, thinking that we're going to win. And the psalmist is telling us that there's no salvation that way. So yeah, you can try, but you're going to fail. The king won't win. The army won't win. The warrior won't win. The horse won't win. You have no shot. Fighting him in his power is not an option. And the psalm doesn't explicitly tell us what to do here. Right? It just kind of leaves us to figure that out ourselves. It doesn't say, therefore, hope. It doesn't say, therefore, fear. It just says it. It says what is. So I think what we should do in light of what is, is to behold. We should look at it. We should see it and understand it. Acknowledge it. We have to see and understand the sovereign power of God in creation. His choice to determine the fate of nations. His might over any other wills that might contradict his. And we just have to stare at it. Beholding him, that's the only possible response. We see it, we know it, we acknowledge it to be true. We stop fighting the waves and we get swept up in them. We behold him in the fullness of who he is because he is mighty. And then when we've finally given in, when we finally acknowledge who he is and started beholding him, when we finally decided to live in the reality which is already true, that he's God and we're not, then we have a chance to have the best response, the one that's both the end and the beginning of all the others. We can hope in the Lord because he delivers. That's the final right response to the nature of God from today's psalm. Hope in the Lord because he delivers. Look at verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. So notice we're still in the arena of God's eyes here, that he's looking out and down on his creation. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. But now there's a shift. He's not seeing, not just observing the deeds. In this case, he's looking with an eye toward doing something specific for these people. His eye is on those who hope in his steadfast love so that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. In my house growing up, keep an eye out was a common expression that I heard all the time. Keep an eye out when you're driving home at night for deer on the road. Keep an eye out for a bargain whenever you're out shopping. 
to, to keep your eye out. That's to pay careful attention to something, to be eagerly looking for, ready to see the first glimpse of whatever it is, and then to have the right reaction to it, to pounce. God here is keeping an eye out for those who fear him, for those who hope in his steadfast love. And when he finds that, he pounces. He delivers their soul from death. He keeps them alive in famine. Those who hope for salvation, they find it in God. We have his favor. We can hope in him because he is the God who delivers. It would be easy for us to get caught up in talks of God's sovereignty here. To get up in talks of uh, his choice here. It says he favors some nations over others. Why? He favors some people over others. Why? He does that. All that is true. He doesn't save everyone. Not everyone receives his steadfast love in the same way. But notice his disposition here. His eye is looking for those who fear and hope in him that he may deliver them. That he may give them life in the midst of famine. So we can wrestle with the idea of God's sovereign choice. You can wonder and weep as to why he saves some and not others, why some nations seem to have his favor and some don't. Those questions, they're beyond us. When they're applied to people, they can be personal to us. But I think we have to be careful in the midst of those wrestlings, in the midst of those wonderings, that we don't forget that God is looking to save. He's keeping an eye out for those who fear and hope in him. He's looking for fear. He's looking for hope. He's ready and eager to save at the first response of repentance, at the slightest hint of faith. Those who hope for salvation, they find it in him, and therefore they have received his favor. And so they're gladdened through his love. Because he is our help and our shield, we can wait for him. Because we trust in His holy name, our hearts are glad in Him. The reason that we're able to shout for joy in the Lord as righteous people is because He's delivered our souls from death. He is our help and our shield. He is our Savior and our Deliverer. Because Christ came and paid the penalty for our sins, we now have life in Him rather than death eternally. We have life with him in heaven rather than the death we deserve. And so praise that befits the upright. Now in our hope we praise because of who he is we trust. The Christian life, it's it's not always easy, but it is always good. It's joyous. And in the seasons where we feel God's favor and presence more tangibly, more palpably than normal, I think it's even more fitting for us to rejoice in the Lord in those days. This is, in my opinion, a really exciting time in our church. When I look at every corner of our church, I see renewal. I see life. I see vitality and strength and growth. Not just paint and floor. I'm excited by those things. But I see people. I see people who weren't here before. I see people who were here before but are leaning into Scripture. They've got a renewed fervor to read their Bibles, to pray, 
to continue to be faithful as they always have been. And in this time, when it feels like we're receiving, when we're experiencing the blessing of God, I think it is right for us to acknowledge that and to praise Him for it. Praise befits the upright. So let's respond rightly today. Let's praise, let's shout, simply because that's what we should do because of who He is and what He's done. Let's have a right fear of the Lord because of His Word. And let's press into that word. Let's behold him in the fullness of his might. And let's hope because we know that our hopes won't lead us to shame whenever they're placed in him. Let's say today with the psalmist, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for this reminder that we should praise you earnestly and praise you well, simply because that's what you deserve. That's the right thing to do. Even outside or beyond any other reasons, though we have them, even on the days when we forget them, when we don't feel like we have those reasons, help for us to remember that it's good and right to praise you simply because it is good and right to praise you. You are holy and majestic. You are loving and faithful. You are the good God who gives good gifts to his children. Help us to see you, to know you better, to have the right awe and fear of you, to behold you in your power and might, and to hope in your salvation. Because without that hope, we have no hope. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.